So we're in Luke chapter 18, and uh, let's begin reading our text of verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted." The overwhelming majority of people that you and I will ever meet believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Right? I mean, that's, that's just a common understanding of things. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And, and most people think that you have to be really, really bad to make it into hell. And so only the Hitlers and... Maybe the Saddam Husseins or the Jeffrey Dahmers, the people that are really, really vile, they might make it to hell, but everybody else is going to go to heaven. Uh, there was a survey done a few years back of 7,000 young people in Protestant churches. And this was the statement made, and they had to answer true or false. The way to be accepted with God is to try sincerely to live a good life. And then they had to say, well, either that's true or false. The way to be accepted with God is to try sincerely to live a good life. Over 60% of those young people answered true. That's the way to be accepted with God. But the parable of Jesus that we just read is going to call that whole ideology into question. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. We're, we're going to see who goes to heaven and who goes to hell from this particular parable, notice that in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. One person was justified, the other person was not justified. To be justified simply is another way of talking about being saved from their sin. One person was saved, the other was not saved. One person went to heaven, the other went to hell. And contrary to everything that our society believes, the bad man went to heaven, the good man went to hell. So we have to deal with that. Now, let's notice who Jesus is speaking to. Verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So it's really interesting that we're told exactly who Jesus was zeroing in on as he told this parable. This wasn't just for his disciples at large. He had a particular group of people that he wanted to instruct from this parable. And that group of people were those who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Now, he uses two people, a Pharisee and a tax collector, in his parable. So he's gearing the, those people that are like the Pharisees. These people that trust in themselves that they're already righteous. Now, what do we call it when someone trusts in themselves that they're righteous? What is that? Yeah, self-righteousness. So Jesus is dealing with the self-righteous people of his day. And of course, he's dealing with self-righteous people today. Anyone who reads this is going to be instructed in the, the evil and destructiveness of having a self-righteous perspective. Now, what are we told um, is the result of someone who trusts in themselves that they're righteous? How do they view other people? With contempt, yeah, with contempt, which means they look down on them. They look down their nose 
on other people. Reason being is that they feel like they have arrived at a certain level or a certain standard of holiness and nobody else quite arrives to their standard and so they look down on others as being inferior to them. They're superior, everybody else is inferior to them and so they have this view of contempt towards other people. Now, as we work our way through this parable this morning, it's going to be real simple. First of all, we're going to examine how these two people are alike, and then we're going to look at how these two people are different. And then we're going to draw out some lessons from this parable for us today. So first, how were these two men alike, the Pharisee and the tax collector? Well, number one, both of these men were Jews. Let's think about the Pharisee first. Um, Pharisees were simply a sect of Judaism. You had various sects within Judaism. You had the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees. So these different kinds of uh, Jews, all under the umbrella of the people of Israel, would worship God. Now, the Pharisees adhered to a really strict obedience to God's law in its most minute detail. And they were conservative in their theology. In other words, they believed the Bible. They were Bible believers. They believed the Old Testament scriptures. They believed in the supernatural. See, the Sadducees denied the supernatural, and the Sadducees denied the resurrection, and they denied angels and demons. The Pharisees believed in all of that stuff. We would say they're very conservative, Bible-believing Jews of that particular time. So they had a really sound creed that they believed in. The word Pharisee means separated one. And so they looked at themselves as being separated from the rank and file of all the other Jews of their day. They were different. They were the ones that really took the law seriously. So they were the separated ones. The problem is they had this really good creed that they believed in. And they had this law that they really tried hard to obey. But in spite of all of that, their morality was really lax. Uh, Jesus says in one place that they had parents that were getting old and up in years, but rather than help their parents, they said, oh, I've already given that money to Corbin. I've given it to God. I can't do anything for my parents. And so by doing that, they were violating one of the Ten Commandments, which was to honor your mother and father. And in another place, Jesus said, these Pharisees, they say things, but they don't do them. So in that sense, they were hypocritical. They said lots of good things, but they didn't actually do the things that they said. Jesus said in another place, they neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, yeah, they, they tithe all of their little garden seeds. They're really good at observing law, but when it comes to justice, mercy, and faithfulness, uh, they neglect those things, the weightier matters of the law. Jesus said that they were lovers of money. Luke chapter 16. He says that they're full of robbery and full of self-indulgence. And in fact, another place he said that they devour widows' houses. Can you imagine? These really religious and devout Pharisees were actually devouring widows' homes. Evidently, they were exploiting them. They would go into a widow's home and find some kind of a way to be able to take their possessions and their money unlawfully. And so Jesus at one point said, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? They had this outward shell of religion, but there was no real substance inside. In fact, Jesus had more conflict with the Pharisees than anybody else. He was always doing battle with the Pharisees. So, the thing we need to learn about the Pharisees is they were Jews. They were Jewish people. But so also were the tax collectors. The tax collectors were Jewish as well. Sometimes they were linked with the Gentiles and the harlots and the sinners because they were hated so much. But they were Jews nonetheless. They have that Jewish heritage. Do you remember when Jesus is teaching about excommunication in the church? When you get back to that, the final stage of church discipline, he says you're to treat that person as a Gentile and a tax collector, which basically means you have nothing to do with them anymore. You don't associate with them. They're cut off from the people of God. So 
Tax collectors were looked on as those that you wouldn't want to have anything to do with. You shunned them. You didn't associate with them. You just cut yourself off from them. See, the Romans had come in and they had subjugated the Jewish people. So the Jews were, they had been conquered by Rome. And so what, is, what does a foreign country do once they come in and subjugate another people? They start taxing them, don't they? And usually it's a pretty heavy tax. And what they did is they would hire other Jewish people to collect the taxes for the Romans from their own countrymen. And so these Jews would go around and they would collect the taxes that the Romans were requiring that the other Jews would, would give. But the amount of the taxes was really vague and indefinite. And so what they would do is anything that they were able to collect more than what the Romans required for taxes, these Jewish t tax collectors would just line their pockets with. And that's why they became rich. The Bible says that Zacchaeus, who was one of the chief tax collectors, he was very rich. So they got rich at the expense of their own countrymen. They were looked on as traitors and turncoats. They were despised and hated. They were seen as unscrupulous and dishonest, really extortionists from their own people. The Jews considered their money to be unclean. They wouldn't even take change from a tax collector because they didn't want that dirty money in their pockets. So they would ask somebody else for change. They would borrow money from a friend to pay the right amount so they wouldn't have to get change back from a tax collector. Uh, tax collectors were not permitted to tithe to the temple and they weren't permitted to testify in court because they were seen as just a bunch of liars and dishonest crooks. So that's how they were looked. <clears throat> a good Jew would never associate with a tax collector. Now let's say, for example, that ISIS were to come over and invade America and conquer us. And then they would start to appoint certain Americans to go to their fellow Americans and collect the taxes that ISIS wanted from other Americans. And they would even actually cheat their American countrymen. They would take more than was legally due and they would take the extra and just line their pockets with it and they'd slowly get rich. How would we feel about someone like that? You can just, that's a, the, the exact same kind of a scenario that they had to deal with in the first century. And so they were hated. But the thing to notice about the tax collectors was that in spite of all of that, they still had a Jewish heritage. They were still Jews. So both of them had this religious heritage. They grew up learning the Old Testament. They knew about the creation, about the fall, about the flood, about the Tower of Babel. They knew all about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had learned the law of Moses. All of this was second nature to them. And so if Jesus were to tell a parable today, he might say something like, two men went up to the church building to pray. One was a respectable religious man and the other was a scoundrel. Same thing. Because in our day and age, we're not Jewish, but we do have a religious heritage if you were brought up in a Christian home. Maybe your parents taught you the Word of God growing up. You are in the habit of going to church. You're in the habit of praying. And that would be the same situation. Two people who had a religious heritage, grew up with the things of God, both of them going to church to pray. One was a very respectable man like this Pharisee. The other is a very disrespectable man, a scoundrel, someone that you'd look down on. Now, that's the first thing that they're alike. Secondly, they both went up to the temple. Verse 10 says, two men went up into the temple to pray. So, the temple was the religious center of all of Israel's activities. Jerusalem's the capital city, and the very center of Jerusalem is the temple. That's where all the sacrifices are made. All the religious feasts and festivals happen in Jerusalem. And the temple is the center of all of that because that's where the animals are sacrificed. So this is the center of religious worship. Both of them went up to the temple. Thirdly, both of these men believed in God. How do we know that? Well, both of them prayed. And the first word of both of their prayers is God. They both believed God existed. God had created the world. 
In fact, they had a true knowledge of God because they believed in the one true and living God, Yahweh, Creator God, the Redeemer of Israel. So they had that in common. And fourthly, both of these men prayed. And we have examples of their prayer right here. The Pharisee plays a, prays a long, flowery prayer, and the tax collector prays a very short, earnest, serious prayer. But both of them prayed. So think about it. Both men believed in a God. Both of them prayed to that God. Both of them went to the temple, and both of them had a religious heritage. Sounds like a lot of people that, that I know today. They have all of that in common. But what we find out is that the Pharisee went down to his house not being justified. He had a religious heritage. He knew the Bible. He believed in God and he prayed to God. And there are people today that have all of those things going for them. They have a religious heritage. They've been raised in a Christian home. They know the truth of the gospel. They believe in a God and they pray to him, but they're not saved, just like this Pharisee. They've never received the grace of God in salvation. They have the shell of religion, but not the reality of it. What they need is what we find this tax collector doing in his life. This tax collector had a broken heart. He confessed his sin, and there was true repentance, true turning from sin. That's what was missing in the Pharisee's life. There was no confession of guilt, no confession of sin, no broken heart, and no deep-hearted repentance. But that's what we find in this tax collector. So that's how they were alike. Let's see how they were different. First of all, they prayed to different persons. Did you notice who the Pharisee prayed to? Himself. <laughs> He's praying. That's kind of an interesting thing. Have you ever prayed to yourself before? The Pharisee's praying to himself. Now, he addresses his prayer to God, but it's really to himself. He mentions God one time. He mentions I five times. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Who's the center of his prayer? He is. <laughs> He's praying to himself. So his prayers are not even getting through the roof of the temple. His prayers are centered in his brain, and it's all about himself. Um, but in contrast, who's the tax collector praying to? He's praying to God. Because he knows that there's no help for himself within himself. He needs God. The Pharisee felt like he didn't need God. Notice that he doesn't even ask a petition. Because he felt like there was no need to petition God. He had everything he needed. He was already right and good and righteous. The tax collector was desperate. He knew he needed God. And so he sought God with all of his heart. He knew there was nothing in himself that he could trust. So he, his trust went out of himself and laid hold of God and God's mercy. So they prayed to different persons. Secondly, they prayed in different postures. Let's notice the posture of the Pharisee in verse 11. It says the Pharisee stood. That's all it says doesn't give us much information. And I can't prove this, but my guess is that that Pharisee was probably crowding as close to the front of the temple, as close as to the altar as he could get, and he probably had his hands raised, outstretched, because Pharisees loved to attract attention of other people whenever they did their righteous acts. And so he's doing as much as he could to attract attention to himself from other people. But let's notice the posture of this tax collector. It says in verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away. So he's standing just like the Pharisee, but he's standing some distance away from the Pharisee. Now, why do you suppose he would do that? Why wouldn't he just chum right up to this Pharisee? 
he doesn't feel like he belongs next to him. He feels like the Pharisee is, look, he's obeyed the law his whole life. He's a devout religious person. Look at me. I'm a scumbag. I'm, I'm a cheat. I'm a liar. I've made all my riches dishonestly. I, I, he felt this unworthiness to be close to this holy man over here and even close to the altar where, where, where God supposedly dwelt. So he's standing. He went to the temple, but he's standing some distance away. There's this feeling of shame and unworthiness in his heart. And then it says... He was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Now, of course, the Pharisee wouldn't be ashamed to lift up his eyes to heaven <laughs> because he felt he was righteous. He's trusting in himself that he was righteous. But the tax collector wouldn't dare do that. So he kept his eyes on the ground. Unworthy to look up to heaven. And then it says that he was beating his breast continuously, over and over. Not once or twice. He just kept beating his breast because he knew it was his heart that was the problem. It was the heart that was the fountain of all this poison of sin that had erupted from his life. And so he beat his breasts. And what does he say? God, be merciful to me. Not a sinner. The sinner. As though he was the greatest sinner or the only sinner on the earth. He's filled with shame. He's filled with a sense of guilt, filled with a sense of personal unworthiness. And he's crying for mercy. He's looking down at the ground, beating his breast, standing some distance off, crying out to God for mercy. That's his posture. Now, they're also unlike each other in a third way. They prayed about different matters. They prayed about different things. In verse 11... Uh, the Pharisee, let's, let's look at his prayer for just a minute. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not a swindler, so I'm not a cheat. He probably was thinking about this tax collector over on the other side who was a swindler, who was a cheat. I'm not like him. I'm not a swindler. And I'm not unjust. That is, I've, I've lived a righteous life, Lord. I'm not an adulterer. I've been faithful to my wife. I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. So that's pretty good stuff. How many of us fast twice every week? Or make sure we pay tithes of everything we get, including little garden seeds. Count them all out and make sure God gets one out of ten. So he was trusting in himself that he was righteous. Now, what's he doing? He, some people have called his prayer a monologue of self-praise. Others have called it a soliloquy of self-congratulation. What he's basically doing is boasting about his own accomplishments. Lord, I thank you. It's, it's really self-contradictory because he's thanking God, but then he goes on to praise himself for the rest of the prayer. So I'm not sure why he would thank God when he boasts about all the things that he had done. He should say, God, I thank myself today that I'm not like these other people and I'm better than them. Really, he doesn't need God. His prayer is full of pride and boasting and a spirit of independence from God. He believes in God, but he doesn't need God because he's righteous already. At least he thinks so. Now, what does the tax collector pray about? His prayer is very short. It consists of seven words. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This tax collector is not putting on a show. He's not playing at prayer. He's in blood earnest about his soul because he knows that he ought to be damned by God. And he is pleading with God to show mercy rather than justice to him. He says he's not like other people, doesn't he? I thank you, I'm not like other people. I wonder, I mean, that's just interesting to me in light of what we have written in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says, there is none righteous. And he's quoting here from the Old Testament, which this Pharisee would have known, Psalm 14. There is none righteous. 
Not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. And in uh, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the Bible says, in scriptures that he would have known and would have read, that he was just as guilty as everybody else. Everybody's on the same playing field before God. We're all guilty. We're all fallen. <laughs> we all have inherited the curse of sin. And apart from God's grace, we will all perish. But he doesn't believe that. He believes that he's okay. Let's notice the, uh, the tax collector, though. He's earnest about his soul. There's only one thing that he's, he's petitioning God for. He's not asking God to give him more money, to have his best life now, more riches, more health. His concern is about his soul, and he's pleading with God that God would have mercy upon his soul. Now, what is mercy? We all know this little definition, right? The difference between grace and mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So what did he know he deserved? He knew he deserved the wrath of God and the judgment of God for his sin. He knew he was guilty. That's why he looks down on the ground rather than up to heaven. That's why he stands some distance away from that righteous Pharisee over there because he knows that he's unworthy before God. He knows that he will be destroyed by God in his wrath unless God in his mercy passes over the punishment that he deserves. And so he's pleading here for the mercy of God. He calls himself the sinner. Isn't that interesting? I, I'm sure that he must have felt like he was the greatest sinner on the face of the earth at that particular moment in time when he was addressing God in prayer. He's overcome by that. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm under judgment. You, it would be right for you to judge me and send me to hell. But would you please have mercy upon me? Now, what's interesting here is this phrase, be merciful. It really means, literally, be mercy seated to me, the sinner. It's the same word from which we get the word propitiation. Be propitious toward me. And do we understand that word, propitious or propitiation? It's God's wrath being satisfied. It's talking about a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath, so His wrath is not absorbed by us. It's absorbed by someone else. Another sacrifice. So, of course, He didn't know what we knew. He didn't know about Christ dying upon the cross for sinners. But in spite of that, He knew about the Old Testament mercy seat. Now, if you are unfamiliar with that, let me just share real quickly. The, the place where God was present when His people were traveling through the wilderness was called the tabernacle. It was basically a tent. This, this tent with a fence around it. And this, this tent was divided into two compartments. One was a perfect cube of 10 cubits in height and um, length and in breadth. The other was more of a rectangular. The, the cube was called the Holy of Holies. And inside of this Holy of Holies, there was one piece of furniture. And it was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. And inside of that box, what, what was placed there? The Ten Commandments, of which the people of Israel had broke. Over and over, they had sinned against God's law. On top of that box, there was a slab of pure gold. And one day out of the year, that slab of pure gold turned into a mercy seat. God was seated in mercy towards his people, even though they had broken his law time and time again, because the high priest brought in blood with him. He killed an innocent animal. There were two animals, two goats that were slain on the Day of Atonement. One was, had the, the, the high priest would set his hand upon the head of that goat and confess all the sins of the people and set him free into the wilderness and that goat would just romp off and never return. That was speaking about how our sins are, 
are released. They, they, they go away. We're delivered from them as far as the east is from the west. But the other goat was not set free. He was killed. His throat was cut. The blood was shed. And that high priest took some of that blood and he walked into that inner sanctuary. He couldn't go there on the other 364 days. If he did, he'd be struck dead. This is the one day of the year he was permitted to go into the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory. He would go behind that heavy curtain. He would take that blood and sprinkle it on that mercy seat, that slab of gold that was over the ark that contained the Ten Commandments. And that was all a picture for us. So that when Jesus appears on the scene, we would make sense out of the cross. We would understand what was going on there. See, when Jesus died on the cross, it made God mercy seated towards sinners. The cross was a propitiation for our sins. The cross, not anything else, not your deeds, not mine, but the cross alone makes God propitious. It takes away His wrath and enables Him to be merciful towards guilty sinners like you and me, like every person in this world. So when this tax collector cries out, God, be merciful, be mercy seated towards me, he's saying, would you be merciful to me, not because I deserve it, but because of the sacrifice of another because an innocent animal has died. Would you transfer your wrath to that animal and slay it in my place and let me go free? That's basically what he's saying. Be mercy seated towards me. So that's how they were different. They prayed to different people. They prayed in different postures. And they prayed about different matters. Now let's try to draw out some lessons from this parable. I see three things that this parable teaches us. Number one, it, par it teaches us what is the right religion. Because there's only two religions in the world. Well, I know they go by lots of different names. But there's basically two religions in the world. There is the religion of do, and there is the religion of done. There is the religion that says that if you do you can be accepted by God. It's the religion of human accomplishment. Okay? So that's the religion of do. But there is another religion. And that's the religion of done. This is the religion of divine accomplishment. You see, it all comes down to, is your religion something that you must do? Or is your religion something that God has already done on your behalf? Okay, there's only two. And you can fit all of the major religions and sects within the world into one of those two categories. Doesn't matter what it is. Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, take your pick. You've got one of two. The... Pharisee was operating according to the religion of do. And that's why he kept rehearsing all the things that he had done and not done. Because he believed that the way to find acceptance with God is through doing righteous deeds. And so he devoted his life to doing as much as he could to earn enough merit so that God would have to bless him and accept him and bring him into his kingdom. What about this tax collector? How much had he done to find acceptance with God? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> he hadn't done a doggone thing. He couldn't point to a single thing he had done. In fact, he doesn't point to anything in himself, does he? The Pharisee points to all kinds of things that he had done. Lord, I wasn't an adulterer. I wasn't a swindler. I wasn't unrighteous. I fasted and I tithed. He's pointing to himself as the basis of his standing before God, this tax collector looks away from himself and he looks to God and he says, God, be merciful. Not be just based on my righteous deeds. Lord, be merciful to me. I'm not righteous. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on this sinner's soul, Lord. 
So this is what we even have to ask ourselves. What religion have we embraced? Is it a religion of human accomplishment or divine accomplishment? One of them leads to heaven. The other leads to hell. Good people, fine, respectable people who believe in a religion of do will end up in hell. Because they're trusting in themselves that they are righteous. And Jesus says they go down to their house not being justified. God doesn't justify people like that. He justifies people who cast themselves on His mercy and don't claim any merit of their own, who know they're guilty and plead for mercy. So that the right religion is the religion of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Christ has already offered an acceptable sacrifice. He doesn't need your sacrifice. He doesn't need it for you to be right with Him. He doesn't need your deeds to make you somehow acceptable before Him. Christ has already offered His work on your behalf. So is your religion based on obeying the Ten Commandments? Or praying five times on a rug towards Mecca? Or abstaining from caffeinated beverages and getting married in the temple? Or witnessing for Jehovah so many hours per week? Or adding your good deeds of charity to God's grace that He's given to you and somehow mixing those things up together and finding acceptance with God? Here is the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Your works have nothing to do with your acceptance with God. Nothing. Absolutely not one thing. <laughs> Isn't that freeing? Isn't that wonderful? The gospel is a gospel of free grace. Free. Absolutely free. There is not one thing you can do to buy it, to earn it, to deserve it. It comes to the person like the tax collector who sees his sin, doesn't try to justify himself before God, but pleads for mercy based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who has offered himself as a propitiation to turn away God's wrath so that his mercy can be bestowed. So the right religion is the religion of divine accomplishment. It's the religion of done. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. He didn't say, it's 99% done, but you've got to add 1% to make it effective. It's done. Everything needed to save a sinner's soul has, was accomplished when Christ lived, died, and rose again. We simply enter into all that Christ purchased by faith, through a living faith in Him. So, this parable teaches what the right religion is. It's secondly, it teaches what is the right way to approach God. The Pharisee approached God on the basis of his deeds, of what he had done. The tax collector approached God on the basis of what God would do for him. And the tax collector went home justified. Now that word justified, okay, here's an, here's an easy way to, to remember what justified means. Just as if I'd. Okay, so justified is right in the middle of that phrase. Just as if I'd never sinned. You're justified when God counts you as having never sinned, but instead puts a positive, perfect, righteous standing to your account. And that all only happens because of Christ. We don't have this perfect, positive standing of righteousness to somehow offer to God. All we have is a life of sin. We're all fallen sinners, right? I mean, let's be honest today. How many of you can say, yeah, I've got a perfect righteousness to offer God by which He can accept me? Nobody here. Nobody in the world like that. So the way to approach God is on the basis of what God does, not on what we do. It's that simple. Thirdly, it teaches us the right way to be justified. And all these are very closely related but I'm just going to keep extrapolating on the same theme. The right way to be justified. The Pharisee justified himself. At least he tried to. But what did God do? God condemned him. He justified himself. God condemned him. The tax collector condemned himself. What did God do? He justified him. The Pharisee exalted himself. 
What did God do? Humbled him. It means brought him low. The tax collector humbled himself, and God exalted him. He bestowed upon him the grace of salvation. He gave him mercy. He gave him a justified standing with himself. The Pharisee trusted in himself that he was righteous, but he was really unrighteous. And the tax collector considered himself to be unrighteous, and he received this righteous standing with God. It seems polar opposites, doesn't it? It seems totally contrary to human logic that the gospel would work this way. But that's the way it works. It's not based on human merit, human achievement, human goodness, human morality. It's based on divine mercy given through Christ the Savior, through faith. So the right way to be justified is not to put your hope in yourself. See, that's why I started off this message by saying the overwhelming majority of people on this planet believe good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus teaches in this parable. It's because we have to switch our thinking on this. And even after you've been saved a number of years, you'll still find yourself kind of messed up because, it, you know, wherever you look, people reward people on the basis of the good things that they do. You, you spank your child when he's bad, you give him a candy bar when he's good, you know, whatever. We, we have this merit system in work. If you, if you do really good and work really hard, then we'll give you a raise. But when it comes to how God deals with people, it's not based on human merit. It's based on His free grace. And basically that grace is received by faith. It's an empty-handed faith. Augustus Toplady wrote the lyrics in Rock of Ages to an awesome hymn. Listen to the theology in this hymn. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? That means if it could never rest. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. See, Augustus Toplady knew the gospel. And so many of us are vague and we, we, we don't really... Understand that it's free, absolutely and totally free. But it can only be received by someone like the tax collector. Someone, see the Pharisee went up to the temple full, he came home empty. But the tax collector went up empty and he came home full. You've got to go to God empty. Nothing in my hands I bring. Lord, I don't have one doggone thing that's acceptable in your sight that's free from any taint of sin. Anything I've ever done has something of self in it that contaminates that work. I can't plead what I've done, Lord. So I don't come on that basis. I come on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for my sin. Let's look at a few passages that make this abundantly clear in the New Testament. Romans chapter 3. This is a great, great passage about the gospel. Romans th chapter 3, verse 21. After Paul has laid out for almost three chapters the sinfulness of every human being, this is what he says in verse 21. But, here's the, the black clouds are parting and the sun's starting to shine through. When he says, but, the word of contrast, apart from the sinfulness of all humanity, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift 
please, please catch that phrase. Being justified, in other words, being made right with God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The gospel is a gift. The gospel is all about grace. And the gospel comes because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His cross work is sufficient in and of itself to save anyone on this planet. Anyone. You don't have to add something to make it effective. You receive that gift of grace through the medium of faith. Faith is the channel by which it's the empty hand that reaches out and takes the grace of God and applies it to your own soul. But that's all it is. There's no merit in your faith. It's simply the receptive means of receiving God's grace. Let's look at another one. Look, look at Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Wouldn't you agree with that? If you work real hard and you get a wage, yeah, you've earned it. There's no favor there. If my employees work hard for me and... and um, when I give them their check, they get down on their knees and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, you're so, you're so good to give me that check. I mean, that's ridiculous. They've earned it. There's no favor. I have to pay them or I'm going to go to jail because, you know, I'll be breaking the law. This is what he's getting at, verse 4. Verse 5, rather. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies who? The ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Not that person who's working real hard and you add your hard works to God's grace and together they make salvation. That's not how, how the Bible describes it. God justifies or makes right with himself the ungodly, the one who believes like Abraham, and his faith is credited as righteousness. Okay, let's look at another. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, probably talking about all of salvation and all its component parts, including faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. You see, we have this reoccurring theme. Salvation comes as a gift. As a gift. If I decide on Christmas to give my employees a bonus, that's like God giving salvation. No strings attached. No strings attached. Uh, this is something from my heart. I just wanted to give above and beyond what you have earned. It's free. He says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So salvation is not as a result of, of works. It is the free grace of God that comes to us received by faith. Consistent theme throughout Scripture. One more. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He, that is God, saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Do you see how explicit Paul is trying to make this? He wants there to be absolutely no confusion. God, you didn't save yourself. You didn't contribute to your salvation. He saved you, and it was not, N-O-T, double not, not on the basis of deeds which you have done in righteousness, but instead, he says in verse 5, it was according to his mercy. It was by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God saved you by giving you the Holy Spirit who came into your heart and transformed you on the inside, made you a new person, he made you a new creature. It was His mercy that did that. So this is the consistent theme of the New Testament. What about you this morning? Who do you identify with in this parable? Honestly, do you identify more with the Pharisee or the tax collector? That's what we really need to ask ourselves. 
Do I expect salvation by something that I do like the Pharisee did? Or do I expect salvation because God has promised it freely according to his mercy? The only safe place for you to stand is with the tax collector. Those are really, I mean, we can gloss right over these words and miss it, but let this sink in. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other, which means the other was not justified, which means religious people can end up in hell. Religious people who know the Bible, who've been brought up in a Christian home, who go to church, who believe in God and pray. Like this Pharisee, they can miss it if they trust in themselves that they are righteous. Folks, I'm, I'm just reading to you this. I, I hope you see that this isn't something I'm pulling out of my hat. This is what Jesus said. It's exactly what Jesus said. So my encouragement for you is, like the, the words of Augustus Top Lady's hymn, come to God through Christ with nothing in your hands. Ever, ever, your whole Christian life, renounce any goodness of your own and put all of your confidence in Jesus Christ and what He's done. Make that your dying prayer, the dying breath that you breathe. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. I don't care how many homeless people you've helped and how many poor people that you've fed and how many good deeds you have done, that can never be the ground of your acceptance with God but only the work of Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how grateful and happy and safe we feel when we know it is not up to us to merit, earn, deserve, or in any way achieve our salvation, but that that was done completely for us by somebody else. And the only question is, do we approach you in faith like the tax collector, or do we approach you in pride like the Pharisee? Lord, if there's anyone here this morning or anyone in the future that will listen to this message that is trusting in themselves that they are righteous, Lord, would you please, because of your goodness, correct that? Show them the error of approaching you in that spirit and enable them by your grace to come on bended knee with nothing in their hands, simply pleading for your mercy because of Christ's sake and what he accomplished when he died for sinners. Lord, please do that. And help us to the rest of our lives to take no vaunted opinion of ourselves because of any good thing that we have done, but to our dying breath, to put all of our hope and trust in Jesus. It's in His holy name that we pray. Amen.